Welcome to the Totha Note podcast hosted by Jim Rhodes, founder and head coach at the Octane Group. Join us while we dive into the questions that matter most to buy here, pay here operators in the world of subprime auto finance. This episode is brought to you by our friends at NEO. And now, here's your host, Jim Rhodes. Welcome, everyone, to the Tote the Note podcast. We're thrilled today to have a uh, uh, distinguished guest, Brent Carmichael, joining us again. Uh, he's a regular uh, co-moderator, co-presenter, co-speaker, whatever we want to call him with the, uh, the Tote the Note series. And uh, we're, we're grateful, Brent, that you're able to come and bring your expertise to the conversation. And of course, you, many of you recognize on the screen Steve Levine, who is the attorney with Ignite Consulting Partners, longtime expert in the uh, compliance arena. How long have you been doing this, Steve? Oh, gosh, I hate to admit it, about 30 years. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. You, I was going to say, you've been doing it since I've known you. It's been, been a good while. For, I've for dated people. myself. Yeah. And obviously the, the compliance world has changed a ton. That's what we're here to talk about. Our, our theme for today is, you know, how to be compliant in the area of underwriting. So this is an interesting thing for me because as a former dealer myself, I watch how dealers are out there. You know, we watch these same conversations on Facebook and social media, Steve, that you see and just, you know, must you, you, I saw you say recently, it's good that People keep you in business. Like there's folks around who need compliance attorneys, right? There's, there's a, no shortage of work for folks like you. But I think what we want to help, try to do today is to, to help dealers understand, okay, what, what can I navigate in the underwriting space? How, how can I be flexible, you know, as a buy here, pay here dealer, which is one of the things I've always said, Brent, is one of the things that I love about the buy here, pay here space is that ability to be flexible. We're, at the end of the day, we're out there pr- providing an unconventional finance solution. So now we got to figure out how can we be at least conventional enough to be compliant. <laughs> and so this, uh, this should be a fun conversation. And I think, Steve, you can just kind of share your, your background as it relates to underwriting in particular. I know you cover all, all aspects of, of compliance, but you want to talk about the, uh, that part of it first? Yeah, I mean, certainly we, we get a lot of questions about underwriting. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I, I think you can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. Uh, I think you can have a, a written policy uh, that, that, that is objective and, and sets forth the criteria, while at the same time leaving the dealer the ability to, to you know, make decisions and run their business the way they see fit. Uh, what I look for, if somebody tells me they have a policy and then tells me they're making, you know, three exceptions a day, well, that's not a policy. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, there is a way to balance it all. Yeah. So, Brent, I know you got a lot of questions in there. Before you jump in there, I'll explain that Brent, uh, for those who don't know him, is a consultant and longtime moderator, 15 years now with NCM, one of the most prestigious uh, firms in uh, the business of uh, 20 groups. And so, uh, Brent, you, you're bound to have questions for Steve. Well, I, and I was going to say just right off the bat, Steve, do you like the word policy or do you like the word guideline better when it comes to underwriting? Because policy seems almost the black and white, right? I, I kind of got to do it this way. But would you prefer us to have guidelines as opposed to policies when it comes to, to underwriting? I actually want to see you have a policy but because I think that's what uh, regulators and auditors expect to see. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think it's important to have that. Now, if you want to have some additional guidelines or, or if you want your, your policy to kind of go into detail and do a little bit of both, I think that's okay too. But, but, but I think you, your aspiration has to be a policy. Good. Okay. 
And then I would also like to follow up just to make sure I, when we talk about auditors and, and uh, regulators, like who are they? Who, who would be the ones who would be governing this particular aspect of our business? Well, you know, you have the CFPB at the federal level. You, you certainly have a lot of state regulators that, that are interested, uh, especially when, when discrimination claims are, are made. You know, more importantly, and some things uh, I think that dealers uh, overlook this is uh, their capital provider wants to see their underwriting policy and, and they're going to audit them to that policy as well. Right. Uh, not, not to mention, uh, again, if, if, if certain allegations are made, you may have a plaintiff's lawyer that's digging into that policy. So it may have a lot of eyes yeah. on it. So, so it's important to, to have something that, that, that means what it says. Yeah, that's a lot, Brent. What did you hear in that? Well, I, I guess my question would be, and again, I'm going to put my dealer hat on here a little bit. Really, what are my chances, Steve, of really getting in trouble for this? I mean, are regulators, are you hearing or have you heard or have you seen regulators that went into a dealership, buy your pay your finance company, whatever, specifically for their underwriting as the lead reason they were there? Or is it typically one of those? They kind of got in trouble for something else first, and then they looked at that while they were there. So, so I, th- I think there's actually a couple of different answers to, to that question. Uh, as compared to, say, you know, 10 years ago, yes, I think this is a much bigger issue uh, that regulators are looking at. Uh, a regulator that shows up, you know, so, so, say it's a, a state regulator that comes in every couple of years and does an examination uh, that that's what they do. I don't think they're going to be digging through your underwriting policies, uh, unless there have been complaints made about maybe, you know, whether, whether they be discrimination, uh, complaints or, or complaints about, uh, that the rates being used, then maybe. Okay. You know, on the other hand, you, you've got, especially there are some state regulators right now that are all over this. And, and I personally think that, that they're, trying to find things, uh, that they, they have a certain view of the industry that they don't particularly look at the industry very favorably. And this is one of the issues that, that they like to get into. So, you know, for instance, if you're, uh, in, in the Northeast, I, I think you've got a lot of state regulators that are more likely, uh, to, to want to talk about your underwriting policy. Uh, if, if you're in other parts of the country, not so much. So, so it's not one size fits all. It depends where you are. And again, I don't want to minimize the importance of underwriting compliance, but you know, I try to stay up with the trades as much as possible. And typically when a finance company has gotten in trouble, it's for something else first that they went in for first. It was some other complaint and then they got into the underwriting side of it and found that they were making more exceptions than what they were supposed to or not. And I get the question a lot. I, I mean, it's yeah. like, how important is this, Brent? How often, I mean, is a, is a regulator really just going to come in just out of the blue and just want to see my underwriting guidelines? And what I tell them is, is what you've always told me. Yeah, you need to be prepared for that. I mean, you need to be ready that they're just going to show up at your doorstep and want to take a look at these things. So don't assume you have to get in trouble for something else first, I guess. And then I'll tell you uh, that the CAC lawsuit that the CFPB brought, uh, that the New York AG uh, Massachusetts has brought similar that there's been a couple of other states that, that they're getting into underwriting because at the heart of it, uh, they are looking for discrimination. That's the third okay. time I've heard that word. Yeah. That yeah. Was, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so that's what I think about with underwriting. I think is, you know, how am I going about, if I'm a dealer over there, I'm a dealer creditor, right? I'm making this decision. So how do I go about that? Um, you know, without the appearance of discrimination and, you know, Brent and I are quite familiar with some of the underwriting softwares out there that are quite good and they're, they're definitely solving a lot of what would be compliance problems because they're, they're making sure that they're compliant in that. But I like the idea of having this guideline or policy where I can follow that software. I write the policies into that software. I stick with that process and then I have an exception making process, right? Because you're going to make exceptions to your, policy or your guideline, but your policy or your process for making exceptions is pretty clear. Wouldn't that help me? That would absolutely help you. And 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 if you've got some sort of tool that you're using, uh say that in the policy. Right. Uh and 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 you know I I love those tools. I, I think they're very beneficial to a dealer. I, I think it really takes them out of the danger of subjectivity. Right. Uh, the trick is you know, I, I tell this to folks all the time. If you're going to go that direction, you have to listen to it. Yeah. You, you just can't listen to it when you want to listen to it. Yeah. Amen. Well, and you got to be consistent in how you use those as well, because I know you've seen this, Steve. I have. And I'm looking through their scoring system, and I look at the application. Well, wait a minute. This probably really should have been graded here and not here. Yeah. And then I'll find another application where it is scored that way. So then we have to have the conversation with the dealer. Look, you guys got to sit down and go over the definitions within your scoring system and make sure everybody's on the same page because Steve scored it this way, Jim scored it this way, and it's the exact same, basically, application that we've seen there. So uh, something I've seen probably more too often than I should have is have I had to put that in a recommendation that, hey, it's time to review the definitions of your scoring system and make sure everybody understands what they are supposed to be. Yeah, and, and Brent, that's a great point. Uh, a, a lot of times I've seen uh, companies implement a, a scoring solution and the owner's happy as a clam, uh, but they didn't train the, the underwriters actually making the decisions. And th- there could be disconnects, you know, six months, a year later uh, that only get picked upon when you do the audit. Uh, right. so, so you really have to make sure when, when you go in this direction, uh, train them and, and, and then train them again. Yeah. So I think from over here, Brent, you know, as a consultant advisor, uh, much like what you do, I'm always super clear about we don't do accounting and we don't do legal. So when the people ask me you know, the, anything in the sphere of legal, I just say, won't you call Steve? Let me get you his number in Fort Worth and talk to him about the, the legal side, because we just uh, we stay away from that. However, we're trying to obviously advise folks operationally in a way that will you know, keep them compliant. And so that's where I wonder, like, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the safeguards rule and some of the things that would have come before that. So I, I understand that we're supposed to have on our team, somebody who's designated as our compliance person, and they would also probably need to oversee this underwriting process. Am I right? Uh, I, I think partially. Y- yes, you should have somebody. I, I don't care whether it's a you know small dealership with, with just a couple of people. You should have somebody that you could point to and say, yes, they are accountable for compliance. Okay. Doesn't necessarily need to be the same person that that handles your underwriting, as long as there's some sort of you know familiarity where, where the compliance person understands the basic underwriting concepts and how how things work. And, and vice versa, whoever's doing your your, your uh, underwriting leadership has to know a couple of things about compliance to, to where the landmines are. 
Okay. So going back to this thing about flexibility, you know, if I'm this buy here, pay here dealer out there in, um, you know, Middletown, Pennsylvania or whatever, I'm trying to figure out how can I, I look at the book and I see my guidelines and it says I'm trying to stick to six months on the job and cert credit profile, but I've got this person here who, you know, maybe is an exception one way or the other. Um, you would recommend that they proceed how based on the, the checklist, so to speak, whether that's in a, on a paper checklist or in a, in a sophisticated software, they've got this guideline that they did right. this policy. How would you recommend they go about making those exceptions? So I, I think the first thing that, that folks need to understand is exception logs are very important that they could really save you if there's any sort of question down the road. And, you know, I, I preach this to, to our clients, and it's always easier said than done, that they may develop good habits for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but but then inevitably uh, the exception log kind of falls by the wayside. That That's why one of the things that, that I encourage folks to do is, is I love quarterly compliance meetings. Anybody that's heard me speak has, has heard me talk about quarterly compliance meetings. One of the things you talk about in those meetings is, okay, let, let's break out the, the exception log. Are we making exceptions? What's the commonality for those exceptions? Okay. Do we need to change our policy because we're calling them exceptions, but apparently this is now part of our policy and we need to change our policy. Gotcha. Uh, and that becomes important because if you ever have to defend yourself, you're able to, to show uh, we did make an exception. We recognize it's an exception. And here's why we made it. You know, maybe they had more down payment. Maybe there was a reason they, they switched jobs, uh, whatever it is. And and if you do that, you're, you're greatly diminishing your, your risk of, of, of somebody coming in and saying, well, you, you see, this, this is proof that they're not even following their own policy. Yeah, I so think. What is an exception, though, Steve? I mean, real, real quick. I'm sorry, Jim. What would be considered an exception? I mean, very few dealers I know have like literally black and white. Well, they don't even have most of them don't have it in writing in the first place, right? That they don't say right. we're going to do this. Right? We don't want to do, you know, we, we're 42 months. Well, if I do 43 months, is that an exception on a one time deal? I mean, would that be considered? I, an I, I, I do think it's an exception because you said 42 months is, is, is the policy. You know, for instance, if you say that our minimum down payment is 500 and you decide to take 400, that's an exception. If, if you say that, that, uh, we need to show stability of, of this much time at the residence and, and then you get less than that and, and, and you look at the totality of the application and, and you want to do that deal. You, you code it as an exception. And, and why are you making that exception? Okay. I'm going to put my dealer hat back on now. I'm going to have the longest exception log in recorded history <laughs> because we all know that when it comes to buy here, pay here underwriting, the only Black and white policy is it depends, right? Because it does. It just depends on everything. How much money they have down, how much the car, all yeah. of this stuff is an all. It's, it's an, it depends kind of thing. That's why I went, I'm going to go back to my earlier question with, do you like policy or do you like guidelines? See, I don't have exceptions typically in a guideline, right? I do have exceptions of policies. So should we have, and again, it's semantics. I get mm -hmm. it. But the top of my document to me would be underwriting guidelines that and, and, keep from having to, and this is going to sound bad because this is my dealer hat again. I'm, I'm probably going to go to jail for this. And I don't want to have to worry about that exception thing, right? If I say, 
um, we like our terms to not exceed 42 months. And if I go 43, to me, that's not an exception because I like it. I, I don't put it in black and white that we only do 42 months and that we only do $500 down kind of thing. So, well, I think you could accomplish the same thing in a policy. You, okay. you, you, you could say that, that we, we have a $500 minimum. Uh, we will consider exceptions based on mitigating factors. You know, I think you could leave yourself room and still have it be a policy. No, now, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm looking for there because, again, you go around any of my 20 groups and you say, okay, and we've done this underwriting survey thing in the past, and it's like, you know, uh, minimum down of 500. So if somebody came in with 400, you wouldn't take it? Well, yeah, it depends, right? So I know there's people out there listening going, well, wait a minute. I mean, I may take less than 500. So what is my, if I put down my minimum down is 100. Well, if somebody comes in with 75, will you take it? Yeah, it depends kind of thing. I think that's kind of where the struggle with underwriting policies is, is we think it is kind of a black and white that if I put 500, then I can't take less. Or if I do, I really have to be able to explain that. I think yeah, so. and, and, and you can. You can yeah. explain it. You know, the thing I hate to see is I asked to see an exception log and, you know, it, it, it scrolls, uh, go, goes on forever. And, and, and that's when, okay, guys, we need to rewrite the policy. Yeah, uh, because the, the exceptions yeah. are, are overruling the policy. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, Brent's enjoying putting his dealer hat on. I'm going to put an auditor hat on for just a minute, and I'm going to pretend that I show up at one of Brent's dealerships, you know, one of his clients or his 20 group members, and I'm going to ask, okay, I see these exceptions. I see that you're trying to be flexible and help people in the community, and you have this policy I see, but you you consistently make exceptions for this for customers, and you let some customers in with an exception at $350 down. But what about this customer here who meets all the checklist and you turn them down? Like, what's the story behind this one you passed on? So that's that's what I'd like to understand. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, you know, I, I think in that case, you you use a scoring system for that reason. Uh, and, and and like I said at the very beginning, if you use a scoring system, you need to do what the scoring system says, and 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 not you know, a, a lot of times I see tension. When, when folks get on a scoring system, well, it, it's not intuitive to what I would have done, so I'm going to make all these exceptions. And that's where you run into that subjective risk. Sure. Now, if you're not using a scoring system, you know, I, again, I, I think it comes down to making sure that the, the content of the policy itself gives you enough room there. You know, and, and, and let's face it, a, a lot of this discussion is uh, is going to take place after after the horse has left the barn. You know, the auditor shows up or the regular shows up and they've got this preconceived notion that, well, the customer thinks that that they were discriminated against or, or something didn't go in their favor. And you almost have to prove, no, it did. We followed our policy. Right. And, and to be able to make that argument, you know, the more data and information you have available, the better. Right. So you don't have to go back, try to remember, you know, what was I thinking on this deal a year ago? Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing, Brent, is that, you know, that we're not likely to have an auditor knocking on our door unless there have been complaints. But if they did show up, they're probably looking through a lens of discrimination. They're looking for primarily some evidence of discrimination, perhaps some other things we haven't really addressed here. But that just lends me to think that I, I need to be mindful of that if I'm a dealer, if I'm a, 
if I'm the director of the, you know, underwriting department, I need to be mindful of those things because I, I want to make sure that I'm consistent across the board. And I don't have anything that looks like favoritism, right? So, so that's kind of where I'm, I'm thinking we're probably able to stay safe. And I think then, Steve, I'm trying to figure out, okay, so I, I have somebody who meets my checklist. They, they score an A in my system or they check all the boxes. But I have some other reason that I've, I've observed something or I've discovered something in my, you know, due diligence or whatever we want to call that in, in the approval process. And I, and I'm uncomfortable. So how can I operate from a place of insecurity? Like Brent, I'm sure you're familiar. I've seen contracts and I, I used to try to have one in my own contracts as a dealer that just said, you know, if I, if I feel unsecure, there's some basis for insecurity. Got information and customers leaving the town with collateral or, you know, moving over destroying the collateral, whatever. So there's some basis for insecurity in the contract. But at the point of the underwriting approval, is there such a thing as finding something that just makes me insecure? I, I think you could do that as long as, as you are being objective. Okay. Uh, it, you know, it, it can't be based on uh, their age or, or, or you know, uh, religion or, or, or uh color and, and anything like that, you know, national origin, things like that. But, but, but if it is, you know, they've had a repossession within the last X or, you know, I, I heard from so-and-so dealer, uh, that, that they, they repossessed the car and it was in shambles. Uh, you know, if, if they tell you certain things in the conversation that leads you to believe, uh, that they're going to abuse the collateral or, or, or take it someplace you don't want to take it. Those are all valid reasons. Yeah. Uh, but, but it can't be for any protected class reasons. I think the part that is, that is interesting me to Brent is like, okay, I've, I'm a Texas dealer and I've got this person here whose application says they've lived in Texas all their life, but they're, they got a Minnesota accent. You know, it's like, you know, those are the kind of things that are like, what am I, what am I to do? You know, I'm, I'm almost obligated to provide the financing. You see? So that's why I'm trying to, what do you think, Brent? Well, and the one thing that, that I, challenge the dealers that I work with is I don't like the underwriter to ever actually see or talk to the customer at all. Um, because, I mean, if you think about the, and I'll just go to the top, Ford Motor Credit, GMAC, Exeter, none of them ever see or talk to the customer at all. They base their decisions solely on the information and the data provided. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of takes out not only the subjectivity, but the opportunity to discriminate at that point. I mean, Jim, you've been around. I've sat across from a customer that was the nicest, yes, sir, no, sir, in the whole wide world and looked crappy on paper. Short job, short res, didn't make very much money. You know, I know Steve's going to make this payment, sell him a car, never see him again. Yeah. And then I've had that that customer in there that's dropping the F-bomb right and left, and you just go, this guy is never going to make a payment no matter what. I can just tell. And then you never hear from him again because he makes all of his payments on time. So mm-hmm. I, I think it can lead to discrimination with us sitting down and talking with the customer or seeing the customer because it can give us a preconceived notion. I mean, uh, you know, some of the questions I've heard them, well, they were tweaking. I mean, how do you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, you don't, they're acting different, but how do you know? So I turned them down because I thought they were using, well, I don't want to stand up in front of a judge and jury and, you know, throw that one out there because it would be, excuse me, Mr. Carmichael, do you happen to be an expert in drug addiction and drug treatment? Right. No. (laughs) So, you know, those are the kind of things that 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 worry me. And you kind of mentioned one has a Minnesota accent, but says he lives in Texas all his life. You know, the out-of-state driver's license thing to me is one that really, you know, for some reason, we assume that if somebody hasn't gotten their driver's license switched over, 
that they're a high risk. And I've had dealers literally tell me, no, we won't sell you a car yeah. if you don't have an in-state driver's license. And there's some states I get it because you can't register the vehicle without an in-state. But but some of the other ones I'm going, and see, this would be more of a question for you. I know that's not really technically a Reg B violation, right? Because, I mean, it doesn't say you can't discriminate based on where their driver's license was issued. But to me, that seems like that would be a compliance issue to, to literally say I'm turning you down Again, in a state where you don't have to have a valid in-state driver's license as a dealer to register a vehicle, so to speak, Arizona being one of those, South Carolina, I think, being another one where the dealer can't physically register a car without it. But these other states, man, that seems to me like that's that's typical. Well, but, but what does the policy say? You know, get, getting back to how the policy is written, does it say in-state driver's license? And, and I think a business has a valid business reason. Uh, for wanting their customers close uh, and, and and being able to find them, so so I think you could say in-state driver's license, and and in your example about you know Texas uh, accent and, and Minnesota driver's license, and the story's just not adding up. N- nothing you said leads me to believe that there's any sort of discrimination like that. It, it's just the story's not adding up, right? And I think that's okay too. Okay, you, you can make that decision. But typically, Jim, in, in your example, there's going to be something else if we're doing our due diligence as far as the application review that's going to say, yeah, he says he lives with mom and dad and has all his life, but credit report or something else, again, if they don't have that lovely Texas accent that we all love, um, that, that would probably lead us to believe that there was something else there with those. Right. So what I'm hearing is it's probably not appropriate, Steve, to have in my policy manual some sort of a he ain't from around here clause. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that probably doesn't make sense. Let's talk about marketing for a minute. Like, you know, one of the things we see out there is dealers who have this really broad blanket, um, you know, marketing approach. It basically says something along the line of everybody rides, you know, or your paycheck is your, your, your approval or whatever that sounds like. So how does that complicate? Uh, the work for you as a compliance attorney? Hey, uh, boy, yeah, you, you've hit upon one. Uh, I've been wrestling with dealers over this for several years now because I think that, that certainly the CFPB, uh, several of the states I mentioned earlier, that this whole ability to repay theory, uh, mm-hmm. that, that it is not enough uh, just to look at income. You, you have to have confidence in, in, in the ability to repay. And certainly if you're saying everybody's approved, or, 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 you know, your, 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 uh, your, your, uh, you know, j- job, uh, pay stub is your, uh, credit. They're not thinking about that whole bigger picture. And I think that leaves them vulnerable, especially in some of those states that I mentioned. Yeah. So I wonder then how you would advise, and maybe not just that marketing example, but when you've got somebody who's, especially that situation where we talked about, a, a the, they seem to meet our checklist. I'm going to assume that our checklist is not publicized. I would be advising our dealers to keep that internal, that nobody knows that we're looking for six months on the job or 500 down or aside from our internal team. But when when I do have somebody I turn down, um, what would be the recommendation on the notice of credit decision when we send that out? I'm sure that comes up for you as well. Yeah, You could go a couple of different directions like that, just depending on the circumstance, but but – I, I want to make one thing clear with, with, with the whole ability to repay argument, uh, and I don't mean to get on my soapbox, but, but what I struggle with is CFPB, state regulators, they've given no guidance 
on on what they expect creditors to do. Mm. Uh, it, it's just that this theory. Well, uh, they don't have the ability to repay, and 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 therefore you're setting them up to fail. But but they haven't said that this is what the ratios should be. This is what we expect to see. Uh, that this is what the analytics show. So so it's it's addressing a moving target. Right. And, and you know, like we've seen, we, we've seen with a couple of co- different companies where, where the regulators go after them, and and whatever they were doing wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. But they never told them they should have been doing anything different. Yeah. So I re- I really struggle with, with giving guidance in this area because they, it's such a slippery slope. Yeah. And and what does it really mean ability to repay? You know, I I always go back to the fact that I've, I've had this debate with uh, plenty of consumer advocates at some point that there's got to be personal accountability uh, on the part of the customer uh, to know their situation and, and, and know whether they have the ability to repay or, or not. Why is it inferred on the creditor that we're the one that, that, that has to be tasked with that when, when it's the, it's the person that that's making that choice. It's ultimately their responsibility. Right. Anything on that, Brent? I got a couple. No, no, I just, um, I was going to say kind of back to, to Jim's question. If I'm going to turn somebody down for the, I just don't feel right. Right. I mean, you know, we have to send out an adverse action and, and your choices are typically information obtained from a credit reporting agency or information obtained from a third party. Would that be a third party? I, I don't think that's a third party. No, I don't. You know, I, we yeah. haven't really heard anything from anybody. We just got a bad feeling because, again, the accent didn't work out or the way he was acting. So we'd still click that as third party, which I think I believe we have to, if they ask in writing, right, we have to produce proof of what we found out or something along those lines. So, uh yeah, the ability to pay thing, and, again, most of the dealers that I work with, and, Jim, I know most of the ones that you work with as well, you know, have a good internal metric tracking system, you know, so they know they, they kind of look at their losses and, you know, I think most of them could validate, Hey, the reason that we put them in this much payment is because historically, if we've kept somebody at that percent or less, they have a better chance of performing. Um, right. We hear the 25% rule, right? 25% in net, no more than car payments has kind of been proven out. Doesn't say that nobody charges off under 25%, but we know that once you get over that percent, that the severity and the frequency both increase fairly drastically at that point. So, um, you know, it's not one of those that's, you know, we can't go to the CFPB and say, well, 25% rule because subprime analytics says so, and Agora says so, and, you know, NCM says so, or NI88 says so. Um, but I think most of them can, can fade that you set them up for fail. You know, the hard part is the, the self-employed, right? Uh, the 1099 guys that if they don't have, you know, it's, it's August. How do you get that verification of income? Those are the ones I think could probably be more of a struggle for us, uh, to be able to validate that ability to pay on those because that really is a crapshoot at that point. It's really hard to, to nail down what do they actually make with that. Yeah. I think, um, I should have warned our viewers and listeners when we started in here that we might run a little long today because there's, there's a ton of stuff. And as we talk, there's more stuff that comes up that I think about. Steve, we may have to have you back on a future episode to kind of dig into some of these elements, because one of the things that's also happening in our industry, as I hear Brent talk about that is, you know, we've seen dealers wrestling with this whole new thing around term of loan. And we're hearing about dealers having crazy high car payments, probably because they're trying to fit the same kind of deal into a certain term, I would guess. 
But we're advising our clients to look first at payment to income, make sure that the payment is comfortable because customer can't be successful if the payment doesn't fit. And so look at that. And But now we've got this weird term thing that we're having to figure out because if I'm going to let the customer in with a reasonable down payment, keep the payment you know, comfortable relative to their income. Suddenly I've got this crazy term that I, I don't, I want the customer to be successful. I'm probably going to have a conversation with the customer about the term or whatever, but it's like, that's one of the problems we see dealers wrestling with. And I don't expect you to have the answer to that. I'm just saying it's one of the things that we're seeing in, in this industry of late is that it's just a really a wrestling match to, to make it all fit. I, I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, a, a lot of times you, you're going to have bad facts down the road. You're going to have a regulator that looks at this and says, well, the car was already six years old when you sold it. You put them in a, a 72 or, or even 84 month term. Uh, you knew darn well, uh, that, that it was going to go past the mechanical life of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. You, you could say that on, on a lot of deals if, if you look at them one on one, but, yeah. but as a practical matter to, to get it to be affordable to, to, and they need transportation today. Uh, they're not going to be able to go get a car for 48 months. You know, I, I just think you, you kind of have to rely on the fact that, that at some point common sense is going to prevail and people are going to understand uh, that they were trying to, to put the deal together for the benefit of the customer. Yeah. Well, yeah. it always been that way now, but, yeah. but yeah, you hope. Yeah, I think we, we all hope that. And I think what what I generally hear, though, is if we can stay – we can create a, a set of policies, keep that internal, and that we clearly document those exceptions when they come up, and we've got a practice of that. And then I think the other piece that I'm hearing is when we do have a customer who seems to meet the checklist, but we have to decline them for some other reason, that we've got some justification in that. That one's kind of uncomfortable to me still as a former dealer, like having to turn somebody away who seems to meet my checklist. Uh, but, you know, I still would probably do it just because at the end of the day, it's it's our dollars and it's our, you know, our judgment, right? But I think that when I hear a lot of that, I'm, I'm, I'm taken back to when I first got in this business, Brent, and I remember hearing about the FDCPA, I think, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which applies to the collection side. And we were taught back at the beginning that Technically, as dealers who are financing our own retail installment contract, our own goods, we're not technically required to comply with FDCPA, but it was encouraged that we do that because it was, it was the only rule book around. And so we think it's a sensible set of rules anyway. So, so I'm wondering in this, uh, underwriting realm, are, are we bound by the same rules as a, as a bank, for example, when we're financing our own inventory? Is it the same set of rules? It, it generally is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Fair Credit Reporting Act, FCRA, Credit Opportunity Act. Uh, yeah, you are. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing, Brent, is we just need to we need to be consistent. We need to avoid anything that looks like discrimination, which I think we all understand. That's sensible. We should all be doing that in our business anyway. And then um, when we have those exceptions, we should uh, clearly make time to document them. And then maybe we shouldn't make our life more difficult by casting such a wide net on the marketing side. It's been my observation. It's really not necessary to do that, you know, to, to say everybody rides. Uh, so, you know, that as an example, I'm just picking one. I'm not picking on anybody who might have that slogan. I just mean when we when we cast that wide net in our marketing, now we really don't leave ourselves any place to go. Uh, for me, that's uncomfortable. We have to turn somebody down, and I, I can't believe that. And I've, I've seen it. I mean, I've actually seen dealers who will have to turn customers down for whatever reason. And so that's an uncomfortable place to be if I'm their attorney. Well, well and, and 100% guaranteed, and that's I think that falls on customers' deaf ears anymore. I think too many people have done it. 
um, that, and everybody knows that they're not going to be a, well, they won't be declined, but they'll be approved, but it'll be conditioned. And I know Steve and, and I don't like that game either. I played it when I was a dealer back, you know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, being the only one in our market that did advertise. Everybody was approved and we physically did not decline anybody, mm-hmm. but obviously the condition was pretty yeah. steep, which in theory was a decline, but we could hang our hats on. No, we didn't decline Steve. Right. We needed $5,000 down on a 49.99 sale price, but we, you know, he was approved at that point. And I think, I think like I said, from a, from a marketing standpoint, I think that's kind of fallen on deaf ears with customers anymore. Anyway, I don't like it because I've been around Steve for so long now that I think he just puts you in the crosshairs. I, I think those are the kind of thing. I don't think they come into our dealership looking for that. I think they're just hanging around on the internet. They come across a website that says a hundred percent approved and they go, huh. I don't see anything here. I don't see with approved credit. I don't see any of that kind of thing there. You know what? I'm free Monday morning. Let me go into that dealer and just see what's going on with that. I think it just puts us in the crosshairs to advertise <laughs> stuff like that. And, and again, we don't decline, but, and I've seen and I've read the, the some of the, uh, the companies that have gotten in trouble for, you know, large down payments. You actually did decline them. Now it's bait and switch. Now it's an advertising compliance issue that you have and then there's been some fines and punitive damage uh for doing those kind of things so i just think stuff like that doesn't you know if you want to advertise to our customer just tell them it's going to be quick and easy yeah there you go make sure and make sure that it's going to be quick and easy right at that point um because that's really what they want yeah quick and painless yeah so i have to believe both of you gentlemen are familiar with bill may pother i believe he's it's passed away Mr. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, um, I remember him sharing, and I think Steve, you would probably offer the same advice as we should probably always as dealers try to avoid having our customers end up in an attorney's office. I mean, that's just, Amen, to brother. Be the strategy is let's not, let's not make them, because anybody who can, if they feel wronged, whether it's correct or incorrect, if they feel wronged, then they may choose to engage somebody or it's pretty easy to file a complaint at the FTC website and all these other places. It's pretty easy for a consumer to file a complaint. So I think that's where we, you know, we, we just need to be working. I think most dealers out there are, but it's just like that's where I think we, we step into dangerous territory when we have that customer who feels like they've been mistreated. And if they happen to have some, if they're a minority or they have otherwise have, you know, uh, something else that, that might make a strong case for being wronged or, you know, mistreated, then I, that that's obviously a scenario we want to avoid. I'll, I'll make a general statement. Back when I was doing defense work, uh, I never handled a lawsuit that didn't start out as a complaint. Yeah, okay. And yeah. And, and the totality of, of my experience is if you give the customer a, a pathway to, to ventilate, uh, then they're going to take that pathway. If you don't, that's when they wind up going online, you know, causing a, a social media storm or, or going to the regulator. So I, I tell our clients, uh, feedback at nameofyourdealership.com. Put it on your letters, have a sign at the, at the dealership, give them a pathway. Yeah, put, put one person in your company in charge of monitoring that right. and, and make sure it's not somebody that thinks they're always right. Yeah. Make sure it's somebody that, that is going to objectively look at what happened here. Yeah, very good. 
Yeah, so I think we're probably at a place where we can wrap up. There's obviously plenty more to talk about. We can have Steve back another time. And I look forward to, by the way, Steve, when we get this thing edited and ready to go out to, uh, you know, the worldwide interweb, I'd love to have you on the morning show. We can t- kind of take some of the snippets of this and have a conversation, uh, you know, to, to wrap that up. But uh, I might just let our listeners know that we're recording this in April of 2023. So obviously information can change. And so this, some of this stuff lives out on the Internet for a long time. So just make sure and, you know, consult your attorney about whatever the latest regulations might be. And we think that attorney probably should be Steve Levine at, at Ignite Consulting Partners. So, yeah, reach out to him. He knows the space quite well. You heard him say 30 years in the industry, and we certainly see he's out there. And by the way, Steve, i got to take a moment to say, I, I see you guys giving so generously. You know, you got your Compliance Unleashed coming up. I had the date written down. What are the dates? Is the, the, what are your dates for Compliance Unleashed? May 22nd to 24th. Uh, it, it is two full days of how to protect your business. Yeah. It's not boring compliance content. It is how to protect your business. Yeah. And that one people can pay and come and be part of that event, which I think is really important for people to make time to do that. But I just want to say too, you guys are out there. So you and Richard are out there generously given uh, lots of great information. And today is another example of that. And we, we appreciate you making time to talk. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, this is what we do. We we, we love uh, dealers. We, we believe in the industry and anything that we can do to contribute and help what we want to do. Yeah. Any th- closing thoughts there, Brent? No, I mean, I, like I said, I I think a lot of Steve, he knows that. I have for many, many years and what they do for the industry. Um, and I'm going to tell on him a little bit here. He He does a lot of stuff that he doesn't get paid for. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, and we greatly appreciate that in the industry because there aren't a whole lot of people that do that anymore. Um, and what him and Richard do and what they're willing to do. I have quite a few of my dealer clients that use, uh, that are, are we share clients with Ignite. And, uh, like I said, I, all the, all the respect in the world for Steve and Richard and everything that they do for us. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's at least one more guy that's doing a lot without getting paid. So I, uh, I find that my, my bank balance is yes, I'm in that group. So. Yeah. So. Well, but his hourly rate, Jim, is a little bit higher than what either <laughs> no, one of us could ever no. ask. No, of course I He's he's a he's very specialized in his expertise. So again, thanks, gentlemen, for making time. We'll wrap up there. And just remember, you can always subscribe. We've got a special playlist over on YouTube. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you can find this information out on your favorite podcast channel. So thanks again for tuning in to Tote the Note. Thanks for joining us. Please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe to Tote the Note. And thanks again to our sponsor, Neo. Find them at neoverify.com. Until next time.